I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Parallax Views listeners, as most of you know, each and every edition of Parallax Views is made possible by patreon.com slash parallaxviews supporters. On that page, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, you can support me financially and help keep this show going with a monthly donation of $1, $5, $10, $15, or $100 and at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere Project. That's M-E-E-R, Mere Project. They are doing some very interesting work in regards to global warming and combating the consequences of it. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at the... $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And if you were in one of those tiers and didn't hear your name mentioned, please contact me on Patreon or by email at parallaxviewspod at protonmail.com and I will rectify that immediately. Sometimes I do not get the proper updates from Patreon about my new financial supporters and donors. So anyone that's having that issue, just drop me a line and we will rectify the problem as quickly as possible. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we have a very interesting guest. Dodd Sharab, who was the troubleshooter for Colonel Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. She was part of Gaddafi's inner circle, and she has a new book out relating her time working for Gaddafi entitled The Colonel and I, My Life with Gaddafi. She joins us on this edition of the show to relate her experiences. A note that the conversation may get a little bit controversial at the very end, but I wanted to let Dodd Sharab get all her views out, and I am not a person prone to censoring someone's views. In any case, I feel that this is a fascinating, provocative, and thoughtful conversation with someone who knew Gaddafi personally. It's not a perspective we hear often. And with that being said, I want to get straight to the conversation with Dodd Sharab on her book, The Colonel and I, My Life with Gaddafi. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on, Dodd Sharab, author of The Colonel and I. My Life with Gaddafi, uh, a fascinating true story. How are you doing today? Fine, fine. Nice meeting you. So if you could, uh, before we get into your relationship uh, to the late Colonel Gaddafi, uh, could you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself 
and how you became involved in the world of Arab business, which I, I think uh, in the book you cover how that could be a real struggle for uh, a woman, especially a young woman, uh, due to issues like sexism. Yes, yes. I grew, I born and grew up in Saudi Arabia. Uh, my originally, I am from Palestine. I'm holding Jordanian passport. I finished the high school in Saudi Arabia. Then I went to Jordan for uh, university. I finished my university in Jordan. Then I went to Egypt for my master's degree. And uh, after that, I opened a small company, a broker for currency in Jordan called the Three Group Company. And uh, from there, I start the real working life, you know. And uh, after that, uh, through one friend, generous, uh, they introduced me to the Libyan government. Then I received invitation to attend the social committee of the women in Libya because that year was every year they they go to different country in Middle East. That year the meeting was in uh, Tripoli in Libya. So my father rejected because that time the relation between Jordan and Libya was not good and we don't have embassy in Libya. But I insist and I went to Libya. I attend this meeting with all the from all the delegation from the Middle East. And uh, in the opening day, Gaddafi came and make a speech in uh, the meeting. That's how I met Gaddafi. Yeah, that first encounter, uh, that first impression you have with Gaddafi is very fascinating in the book because I noticed uh, everyone else is sort of um, fawning over Gaddafi and you actually ask him a rather pointed question. Uh, could you talk about that first encounter you had with Gaddafi? Yes, three hours he was talking about woman freedom and he supports uh, women and he, uh, he was talking about why in Middle East, we don't have the prime minister woman or ministry of defense woman. Why always with our education, our social security minister. Uh, and he told us, go back to your country, defense your right to be in a good position. And after he finished, I, a lot of people raised their hand for question. And most of them, they were asking him political questions that our president sent our regard to you, you know, political things, because this is organization, every organization from women association belong to the government. And uh, I raised my hand, then he, he allowed me to ask question. I told him, if you have all this idea, and if you respect the woman that much, and where is your wife from this movement? Then he said, what's your name? So I said, my name. He said, where are you from? I said, mm -hmm. from Jordan, but I'm not with the official uh, delegation. He said, again, what's your name? He want to gain time to, to answer the question. Then in the end, he told me, my wife, it's typical housewife, you know, and uh, I don't want her to have any position or to lead any movement because I don't want Jihan Sadat number two in Libya. He, ref he referred to the wife of President Sadat of Egypt that time, you know. He said some women, when they have power, they misuse this as a wife of the president. And I don't want this to be happen in my country. And he said, this is the answer. Are you satisfied? I said, no. He said, thank you, and finish. Then we went back. We, this meeting was in Benghazi. We went back to continue the conference in uh, Tripoli. The next day, few people from the army was knocking my door and I opened, I was very scared. They said, Gaddafi want to meet you. So I thought I upset him. Then I, I thought I will be in prison because the media that time was having bad image about Gaddafi. Real, real quickly, uh, were you worried too about I mean, you responded to him, I believe, when, when he asked, uh, are you Jordanian? 
Um, were you worried about uh, being a Jordanian in the middle of this, or uh, did you did you sort of feel safe about that because you were Palestinian Jordanian? I am feel I feel safe because I'm Palestinian Jordanian. So this is what he wants to know. So then uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about what happened after you first met Gaddafi and and um, the the private meeting you had with him? You know, after that, I went to the head of uh, women uh, association in Libya, her name Naima Asugayer, and I told her these people want to take me to Gaddafi and I'm not going, I'm very scared. She was smiling and she said, no, some of the delegation asked for personal meeting with the president. Uh, he agreed on four delegation, uh, uh, the Palestinian delegation, South Lebanon delegation, Bolisario delegation, and he said he he took the video and he point because that was in video the conference. He point on you. He said bring this woman to me. And I said I'm not going. She said you are not going alone. We are going this three delegation and me and you flying back to Benghazi to meet the president. Don't we be worried? She called me down. Then we went to Benghazi. He met all the delegation before me. He left me the last one. And then she came and took me inside the room where he's sitting. Yani, he have, this guy have a very strong charisma. If you meet him the first time, you need five to 10 minutes to put yourself together. He knows that very well, knew. So he ignored me and he was talking to Naima for five, 10 minutes. Then he turned his face to me. He said, sit down, you know, we sit down. Then he asked me question, what I do, what I study, uh, wh where I am originally in Palestine, which uh, city. And he asked all the question he want. And then in the end, he turned his face to Naima. It was half an hour meeting. And he told her, this is, you bring me very nice present. He meant about me. And we left back and we took the private jet back to Tripoli. Next day, they called me from the head office, quarter office of the president in Tripoli. They sent me a car. I went there. Then his office manager called Ahmed Ramadan. He told me the president would like you to be advisor for Libyan Arab Foreign Investment Office, LAFIPO. And you have to go to meet the chairman and sign agreement with him. Since that time, I became advisor for LAFIPO, economic advisor. After that, trip after that, I they called me. I went to Libya again. Then the president met me and he said, you will be advisor for LAFIPO, but you take the order from me. You will be advisor for me. We put LAFIPO as umbrella only. So it's interesting. You were obviously aware of Gaddafi even before you had met him. Uh, and it sounds like you were uh, fascinated by him. What what fascinated you about uh, Colonel Gaddafi? Because, you know, that time it was not a lot of social media around, you know, so not like now, you know, and you only hear what your local media said, you know, and he was different. I felt he was different person. And I was uh, uh, dreaming to know him more and to meet him personally, you know, because I, I felt I want to know more about this man. Did you have any uh, preconceptions about him before you met him? I mean, uh, th there's a lot of negative publicity, as you know, about him in, in the West. I know the negative, even in Middle East was negative image about him. But when I went, when I went and met him, he's a normal guy, except he have very strong charisma and he's very clever, you know, and uh, he speak very slow and he listen carefully for what you said. He's a good listener. And I didn't see anything wrong with his personality from the first meeting. He's not aggressive at all. So could you talk a little bit about your sort of first missions uh, that, that you take up for Gaddafi? I believe you uh, 
the the initial one was what with um uh, the owner of I think the Observer in in Britain. Yes, uh, Tiny Ronald. Mm-hmm. You know because they were thinking to buy uh, Savoy Hotel, all Savoy Hotel all over Europe, and the owner was uh, Tiny Ronald, and Mr. Adnan Kashugji. Uh, the Saudi military dealer was involved and he sent me, this was the first mission to meet Tiny Ronald and to talk about the deal and make sure everything is okay. And he sent with me the chairman of LAFICO for the negotiation and I attend everything until they close the deal. When you first start working for Colonel Gaddafi, uh, do you, are you worried that you're in over your head um, what's going on in your mind uh, when you're meeting uh, Tiny Rowland and uh, these other figures you eventually meet, uh, Khashoggi? And, and how do you sort of uh, gain a level of, of confidence in, in dealing with all these various characters and working for Gaddafi? I was worried not to succeed because I want to prove myself to him. I want to keep the position. I want to work very hard to reach more with him. You know, because I thought this is the opportunity of my life. What What do you consider the sort of key turning point when it comes to your uh, working with Gaddafi? What What's the uh, sort of mission that he gives you that uh, maybe is a turning point um, for your uh, relationship with him? You know, he gave me a lot of economic mission. It was normal, like any advisor you know, uh, related to Libyan Arab Foreign Investment Office and the things they buy and sell in Europe. But he, when he started give me political mission, you know, uh, he gave me a lot of mission, but the most important one was meeting President George Bush in United States regarding Lockerbie. So this was very important mission. Could you talk a little bit about um, meeting Bush and uh what that mission was all about. Uh, Gaddafi was very keen to solve Lockerbie problem because he wanted to remove the embargo from his country. And this, you know? this is the uh, Pan Am Flight 103 bombing. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, he was always focusing in the United States. He wanted to solve the problem with the United States. And I have a friend of mine uh, called Lucy, daughter of Mr. Trammell Crow in Texas. And I called her and she said, uh, okay, we will uh, arrange, we have a fundraising uh, dinner for President Bush in Texas, in Dallas. And we invite you with the Ministry of Treasury of Libya to our home so you can meet the president and tell him whatever you want. And um, that time I was in New York with the Treasury Ministry of Libya, Mr. Al-Bukhari, to attend uh, uh, IMF meeting. So George Bush was there and he made a speech and the Ministry of Libya made another speech. Then after a few days, we fly to Texas, me and the minister, and we were the guest of Mr. Trammell Crow. We stay in his house, not in the hotel. And the next day was a dinner for fundraising for the second term for Mr. George Bush. And when George Bush arrived, uh, they introduced me to him in front of the house. And they said all the family should, they have to stand together to have a picture with the president. Then the president stand, George Bush, and he said, I will stand next to this beautiful woman about me. Before that, Mr. Trammell-Claw received many calls from James Baker and General Scorecraft, asked him to get this ministry out of his house because it's not good to be there when the president coming because it was problem because between United States and Libya. Mr. Trammell rejected and he said he will stay, but I will not let him come near to the president. So I am the one who talked to the president 
and we entered the house and dinner start. A lot of people was in the backyard, you know. That then the president went to the terrace, make a speech to the people who invited, and then he came inside the villa, and I was having a sticker here with my name, security sticker. Then before, without looking to my sticker, he said, Miss Dad, can you relay this message to your boss? I said, do you mean King, Hus King Hussein of Jordan? He said, no, I mean Gaddafi. Tell him if he want to solve, that means I see I already report my name to the president. So he knows who I am and why I am in the reception, you know? He said, tell him if he want to solve Lokorbi problem, he have to talk with the British first. And this is my advice to him. I said, thank you, Mr. President. And after that, uh, it was, he was right. We, when we dealt with the British, we solved the problem. So Gaddafi was making a mistake by concentrating on the American instead of the British. So this was the first mission. I went back to Libya with my picture with the president and I tell Gaddafi what's happening and I relay the message to him. I told him this is the message from Mr. President George Bush. So there's so, and this was this was the key for solving local problem. So it's really fascinating because you mentioned uh Bush sort of knew who you were already. Uh he, he knew you were sent there uh, by Gaddafi. And I, I found it very interesting that uh, you note in your, your memoir that uh, at first you, you, you're thinking, oh, this is, um, you know, really an honor to meet him. And, and then you start thinking to yourself, oh, a lot of this is, is very much theater um, uh, that, that Bush is putting on for you. Could you uh, explain what you meant by that? What do you mean? I don't understand. Um, in the book, uh, you say that a lot of it was was sort of um, staged managed, um, as in uh, Bush knew who you were and he, he sort of uh, picked you out of the crowd and whatnot. Yes, yes. You know, nobody can come and attend the meeting with President Bush fundraising if all the people have to be checked by the CIA and the security for security reason. And when George Bush come to me direct and talk to me, without looking to my name, and he mentioned my name, he, I understand that he's been reporting. He knows everything. And I didn't ask him any question about Lockerbie. He told me, can you tell your boss? So he knows why I'm there. And he, but I have to tell you something. George Bush also, one of the president which have a very strong charisma. I met a lot of presidents in Europe and Middle East. The only two people have a very strong charisma is George Bush and Gaddafi. And, you know, I, I speak a good English. And after that, I was social with Mr. George Bush people, like General Scott Kraft, James Baker, everybody. And uh, I understand the package they want from Libya, you know. And uh, I went to Gaddafi, and it, this was not the first political uh, mission he gave me, but it was the most important one because after that we solved Lockerbie. I, I want to talk a little bit more about Lockerbie, but also uh, was it sort of uh, to your benefit uh, that you were uh, a Jordanian working for Gaddafi when you went to to meet with Bush? Because it, it seems like... Uh, Otherwise, it could have been a big scandal because of the relationship, you know, being so frayed between Libya and the U.S. at that time. Yeah, I think Gaddafi meant to do it. He wants somebody not holding a Libyan passport. He wants somebody have good reputation. Uh, somebody the American will trust, you know, because that time the relation between Jordan and United, United States was excellent. We have our King Hussein that time. And uh, he wants somebody which not Libyan, doesn't have any interest, political interest to interfere and relay message to him because Gaddafi 
never trust his people. My experience with him, he trusts maybe three or four persons, that's it. So he wants somebody from outside the circle to report to him what's going on. So then with Lockerbie, uh, that's a very interesting section of your book. And I, I was wondering, what's your general feeling on what went down with uh, the Lockerbie bombing? Because uh, you talk a lot about how Gaddafi was very adamant that you know that was not his doing. So what was your general takeaway from the uh, Lockerbie affair? You know, I was heavily involved with Lockerbie file because General Gaddafi put me one of the committee who are responsible to solve this issue. And the Ministry of Foreign Ministry of Libya was the head of the committee. And uh, Gaddafi himself told me, we have nothing to do with this. If I, if, if I did it, I would be very proud to do it. This is what he said. But he said, we have nothing to do with this. And after that, the second mission, when I went and met Mr. Almegar, he's a prisoner of Lockerbie, and I met him two, three times, and I was in contact with him by telephone. Yes, he assured me, Mr. Almigarhi, that he have nothing to do with Lockerbie, you know, and he was studying all the legal file, and he he his intention was to do an appeal, you know, and he said I have to clear my name, and he have no reason to lie to me when I met him in the prison. I'm not Libyan, you know. He is already in the prison, so he have nothing to lose. So why he should lie? And you, with the time, he proved he is right and Qaddafi is right. If Al-Migrhi was not innocent, you know, why they release him, the British? Why they release him? They said we release him for medical reason. A lot of British and other nationality in the British prison have medical problems. They don't release them. And this guy, they put him in as much dangerous man in the world. You know, how you release this guy when you do a deal with Libya against what? I have a story from Gaddafi. He said that we buy all the evidence from Europe to prove that Migrhi is innocent. And he was threatening the British government. He will release all this. And then the British government make a deal with him. They said, guarantee us that this guy, he will not do the appeal. We will release him and we'll close and we will put the relation back with Libya and we put ambassador and normalize the relation. Is this normal? So then it's very interesting to me, you know, with Lockerbie originally, you know, uh, people pointed towards the Iranians and and um, you know Palestinian mm-hmm. terrorists, uh, yes. and then the the attention gets put on Libya. And what's interesting to me is your feelings on this. You know, once the West had decided that Libya was behind this, uh, it was really almost a, a guilty until proven innocent type deal. Yeah, because you know that time, if you remember, was the Gulf War the first Gulf War, and they don't want to point Syria for this issue because they want Syria to stand with them in the Gulf War. They don't want to attack Syria. So the only one was available is Gaddafi, and he have a lot of money, and they can take billions from him, and this is what they want to do. It's political decision. It's not, uh, you know, if you follow the media, if you follow every one day before, they used to say President Arafat, the Palestinian president, he's the most terrorist guy in the world. Few years later, we found him in the White House. Yeah, how we are going to believe this media and these people, whatever they want, they want to make you an angel, they make you an angel. They want to make you a devil, they make you a devil. It depends on their interest. 
If they have interest in you, you are an angel. If they don't have interest in you, you are a devil. If you don't follow their order. Last thing on, on Lockerbie, and then I, I want to move on more uh, into Gaddafi's personality and your observations on that. But, you know, I think another observation that you make is that at the end of the day, a lot of uh, the elements of this story of the Lockerbie bombing weren't necessarily driven by people wanting justice for what happened. Uh, but, you know, certain politicians, people like Tony Blair, essentially wanting a legacy and a lot of people trying to get money off the tragedy. Could you discuss that a little bit and why you feel that way? Uh they want they want to get money as much as they want. Gaddafi rejected in the beginning, and then me and uh, his ambassador uh, in Italy, Mr. Abdul Atil Abedi, Gaddafi trusts him very much. You know, he's like his father. Uh, we talked to Gaddafi. We told him if the money will solve the problem and lift the embargo. You, we already have a lot of money. Pay, pay the money and lift the embargo, but don't admit uh, Lockerbie that Libya did it. And uh, we told him, we don't want to see your picture like Saddam Hussein in the TV. And they are willing to do it. They bombed Libya in 1985, President Reagan, and they can do it again, you know? And we convince him, then he agree to make a fund uh, uh, like from business people in Libya, you know, and from this fund, we pay the Lockerbie issue. So one of the it most interesting... Mm -hmm. was $2 billion something dollars. So what's really interesting about your book is that you sort of have this issue with uh, Gaddafi and his regime where uh, you say that Gaddafi viewed everything as uh, being needed to be done in a, a sort of underhanded way, I, I think is the term you use, whereas uh, you sort of try to make him understand, you know, you can just hire um, lobbying firms <laughs> to do a lot of these things. Could you discuss uh, maybe the blind spots Gaddafi had and where you thought he um, made a lot of missteps? You know, Gaddafi, you know, like any person, he's a human being. He make decision upon the information he received from intelligent office, from foreign minister, from all his sources. But he prefers the sources like me, you know, that they have no interest in any position in Libya, you know? Uh, and Usually, his personality, he doesn't trust people quickly, you know. He always have a doubt about anything he received. Uh, so I was trying, you know, the most important thing to deal with Gaddafi is your approach, the approach. He's a Bedouin, you know. He doesn't like to, to be given an order. He doesn't like to be ordered. Uh, like... Hillary Clinton, she said, Gaddafi, you have to leave Libya. You know, what does it mean? Yani, what is this? She, we are not in the school. He's a president, you know, and he's a Libyan. You want him to leave Libya, where to go? And if you see the speech of Gaddafi after the interview with Hillary Clinton, he said, she make me feel like I am renting a flat in her apartment and I'm not paying the rent. <laughs> he was making a joke out of her. But uh, if you know the approach, if you talk to him nicely, if you, if you put, explain the idea for him, you can get whatever you want from Gaddafi if you have one-to-one -one meeting with him. You know, he will listen to everything you said, give the order for him, but not like an order, like wishes, that I hope that you have a lot of money, please pay the money, we don't want problem. The embargo cost Libya economically a lot of billion of dollars, 
pay this two billion and just close the story. It's also interesting. I think you show different sides of Gaddafi in uh, the book. And what's really interesting to me is I think here in in, in the West, uh, we have this picture of Gaddafi as, as just a, this sort of strange eccentric. Uh, and I, I know that there are eccentricities he had. Uh, you, you mentioned in the book uh, that he would keep very odd hours. But it also sounds like he was a very shrewd man, a very intelligent man. Could you talk about uh, that side of Gaddafi and also maybe the um, the, the emotional side of Gaddafi? I know you mentioned uh, in the book that uh, he was uh, very sad when your, your brother passed away. Could you talk about the sides of Gaddafi, I guess, that uh, maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with? Look, President Gaddafi, it's a normal human being guy. He uh, uh, He's very well educated. He read too much, but he concentrate on his reading about the history of Islamic, you know? And I think he read thousands of books, you know? Every night he have two, three hours only for reading. And the best gift you can give him, it's a book. This is what he liked to have. And he's very patient, uh, very emotional, uh, and uh, very well educated. Uh, he's a good listener, you know. He doesn't make quick decision. If he promised something, he delivered, you know. And... Uh, when you when you tell him about any sad story, you know, you see you can see tears in his eyes. I never see any violent action from him, you know, uh, and he cannot hide it because at 22 years working, I should have catch him on any uh, days when he when he's angry, you know, he just only. Don't meet anybody, close the door and cancel all his meeting. Uh, when my brother passed away in Libya, after six months, I, I went to Libya. Uh, you know, when he passed away, they put him in private jet. They sent him after eight hours back to Jordan. When I went after six months there, I was wake, wearing a black uh, suit and Gaddafi, when he saw me very sad, you know, I saw his tears. He he knows my brother very well. He said, I'm very sorry for the tragedy you have, and I don't know what to tell you, but I am your father, I am your brother. Don't worry, I'm behind you, be strong. So he supports me a lot. It's interesting. I think one of the things that often comes up in your book is that uh, you sort of, but it heads not necessarily always with Gaddafi, but people within his circle. And there's two figures in particular, and I don't want to mispronounce their names, but uh, Abdullah Sanusi, Musa uh, Kousa. Okay. Uh, could you talk about why you you sort of butt it heads with these figures and, and also uh, the problems they may have caused uh, for Gaddafi and his government? You know, Abdullah Sanusi was in the intelligent office. And uh, he was one of the people uh, was responsible of UTA, the French airplane. And uh, Musa Kosa was the head of the intelligence office. Uh, Musa Kosa is very well educated. You know, he, uh, he studied in the United States. But both of them, I was their enemy all the time. You know, Mr. Asanusi never likes me. So Mr. Musa Kosa, but one day Mr. Musa Kosa met me and he told me, I don't hate you personally, but this is my job to protect the president. And you are not Libyan. And you are in the first circle with President Gaddafi. And you know everything about his personal life. You can see him more than I can see him. You know, and you know better than me a lot of information. And for us, you are like a bomb, like nuclear bomb. We don't know where will explode. So we have to watch you very closely. And 
we like to take you out of the circle, you know? But he said, don't be angry with me. This is my job, you know? But Musa was never aggressive. Abdullah Sanuzi, he's double faces. He can see you and kiss you and shake hand with you. And after that, he make, maybe he will kill you, you know? He's capable for anything. And the most important thing that he was getting his power before because he was married the sister of Gaddafi's wife. So even if Gaddafi want to get rid of him, he have to be patient, you know. And he he is from very big tribe in Libya. So I can assure you some of the things Sanusi did, Gaddafi never approved it. He knows after that because they think. If they do this, they will please the president, you know? But uh, they put him in trouble. They, everything they do, they, they put Libya and the president in trouble. There's actually one very telling story in the book where you meet with these prisoners in Britain. And, uh, you know, you unravel this story that you initially think is going to be straightforward and then find out, oh, it's it's not so straightforward. And uh, it, it seems like there was a, a lot of corruption um, amongst Libyan officials uh, that led these uh, prisoners to um, seemingly feel like they were forgotten about. Um, and you had to sort of make things right. Could you relay that story um, in, in a few minutes here? Because I, I think it's a, a very telling story that says a lot. You know, uh, this was the first political mission Gaddafi gave me, and uh, they gave me the list of the name in London. I went to legal firm in London, gave them the name, and asked them to arrange for me meeting with them through the interior minister, you know. They did their job. They gave me the schedule of the meeting. I met all, it was seven people, you know. I met them all. All were guilty. You know, they admitted and they were guilty, but they were very angry because in the court, Libya, they didn't put for them any uh, lawyer. And they said they never met Gaddafi and they don't know him personally. And they get the order to do this from the revolution uh, office and from Abdullah Sanusi. Uh, and they were in miserable situation. They don't have clothes, they don't, nobody visit them, no, nobody look after them, you know. Even if they are president, they need things, you know. They don't have money in the prison to do anything. So when I come back to Gaddafi with all this report and with letter from them, handwriting letter, and with the recording from them and picture from with me and them, Gaddafi was shocked. At that time, I didn't know I'm touching a red line with the intelligent office, you know? I don't know that they took a lot of money and they told Gaddafi, we spend hundreds of million, we put lawyer, we send money to them, we are looking after them. He doesn't know that they are lying. Then when he discovered that, that time, I became an enemy of the intelligent office. And I, I was going to say, um... There's also a, a, a story, and we don't have to go over it in detail, but uh, a story where uh, you're tasked with uh, dealing with this oil deal and to see if uh, someone had got one over on Gaddafi and, and the money hadn't gotten back to Libya. And, and you find out, nope, that's not the case. Um, and it seems like uh, th there were just these uh, people uh, around Gaddafi that uh, weren't working in his, in his interests uh, or necessarily the Libyan people's interests at all times. Yeah, I know, because you're talking about the guy who asked me for marriage after. Shahid Gaddafi Dam. He is the cousin of the president. You know, after I he gave me the file and I went to Switzerland and I discovered that all the money from the selling the oil is going back to Libya, you know, not to stay outside. And he told me. But Colonel Gaddafi was worried that the money wasn't 
coming back to Lviv. Then you find out it, it is. is. It was the intelligence office report to him, you know, and they said to him, he's going to do a revolution against you. So he put this guy and the other member of the army, seven people general in the prison, you know, and he was investigate the matter. So intelligence office, they don't know that he gave me the file to investigate in Switzerland. And after I report back to him, he released his cousin and he released everybody and he was mad. This is why he never trusts the report he received from his people because it have personal interest. They want to get rid of his cousin because he was a straightforward guy. I hope everybody listen to this interview to buy the book and read it. Otherwise they don't understand what I'm talking about. They have to read the book, then they know my story. I want to share my story with all the world because they don't, people, they don't have enough information about Gaddafi. And I am the only true story out of Libya coming. And this is the first book out of Libya. It's a true story. And I am thinking to offer my book to Netflix to make a movie so everybody can learn from my experience with Gaddafi. And I want all the women to have the guts to be, if they are single women, divorced women, they have children, they can work, they can raise their children together, they can do it. They can do it and I don't want them to be scared. I just had a, a few more brief questions and you just sort of segued into one of them, which is, uh, what do you think Gaddafi's legacy is when it comes to women and, and uh, their place in uh, Libyan social life? Because I know uh, a lot of people will talk about Gaddafi's um, affairs, uh, but at the same time, I mean, I think he did do a lot for women in Libyan society. Yeah, you know, 30 years ago, when first time I went to Libya, the Middle East was not giving any right to the woman. That time when Middle East not giving any right to the woman, Gaddafi have the woman drive, woman ministry, you know, woman in the army, woman in the interior ministry, woman in the police. Yeah, he supports the woman, his bodyguard, his own bodyguard, first circle are women. So 30 years ago, when all the Middle East was backward, he was supporting the woman and pushing her, not by talk, you know. Really in Libya, women ha have the right to do anything they want. Before we close out, uh, th there were two more questions I had and, and one that you wanted me to ask you. But, but first, Gaddafi ends up being poisoned against you uh, by people in his circle. And you, you end up having to escape Libya uh, there's the NATO bombings. We can't get into all of that here. But what I think is really interesting is that uh, you don't take a view of Gaddafi as necessarily an angel or or the devil. And, you know, I, I think that's hard for a lot of Westerners uh, to swallow because we've always heard what a monster uh, Gaddafi is. And despite your experiences where uh, Gaddafi sort of turned on you and imprisoned you, you say that you're not happy with how things turned out. Um, maybe you could explain that a, a little more. What do you think Gaddafi did for Libya? And, and why do you still think that we should maybe not look at him uh, simply through the, I guess, Western media lens? Yeah, because everybody said he didn't do anything for Libya. This is not true. If you see Libya in the movie of Omar al-Mukhtar, The Lion of the Desert, you know, when after that King Asanusi was ruling Libya, you know, there is no infrastructure in the country. There is no water even, you know. When Gaddafi came, he makes a great river. He delivered water everywhere in Libya. Infrastructure, you can travel. There is more than 30 airports in Libya. He built the infrastructure, but you have to put under consideration he was 25 years under uh, embargo from United States. And then 
he have under, was af, uh, under embargo from all the world because of Lockerbie. When the, he never have time, time to breathe, you know, he always have problem with the West. When he solved all the problem and he established the African Union, you know, and it, it, it's, it exists until now, when he decided to make one currency for Africa and not using the dollar, they decide to get rid of him. Do you think also that, you know, a- after seeing what happened with Iraq and, and Saddam Hussein, um, and I'm talking about the 2003 invasion, do you think Gaddafi maybe became increasingly paranoid because of U.S. actions during uh, the Bush years and even prior to that? You know, uh, if you go, go through all the history, United States, and the NATO, they never interfere in any country and this country in a good position now. They destroy everywhere. Iraq, when Saddam Hussein was there, was a very good country, very nice country. Now, American left Iraq, destroyed. They need 100 years to build Iraq. So what kind of democracy they are selling to us? NATO bomb Libya. I saw this in my eyes. They kill a lot of civilians, a lot of children. What they are talking about? What kind of democracy is this? You killed all these people and destroy a country to kill one person because you don't like the president? You know? I thought, Yanni, through the intelligent people, they can kill the president, Yanni. They don't have to destroy the country. When I was in home arrest in Libya, nine months NATO bombing Libya, kill civilians, kill children, and now they are talking about Ukrainian refugee. What about Palestinian refugee? What about Syrian refugee? What about Libyan refugee? What about Iraqi refugee? They didn't move finger in Europe for this problem. But because this is in Ukraine, they make it big issue. Is this fair? I'm not with Gaddafi and I'm not against him. I said in my book, I want people to judge this guy, not me, you know? But I'm telling the people my story. This is what's happened with me. And it's up to them to say he's good or bad. I'm not judging anybody in this book. So before we wrap up, The other thing I wanted to mention, I I will get to uh, the the question you wanted me to ask you is, um, I guess when Gaddafi dies, uh, we have that famous clip of of Hillary Clinton um, saying, you know, we came, we saw, he died, and then laughing. Uh, And, you know, I've seen the footage uh, of Gaddafi's death and his alleged last words being, uh, what did I ever do to you? It really is a horrifying sight to see. And despite everything that you had been through with being on house house arrest, I think you share that view. Could you talk a little bit about the impact of of Gaddafi's death and your thoughts on the reaction um, many in the U.S. like Hillary Clinton had? Because I, I think it was a very callous way to respond to his death. Yes. You know, first of all, I don't want Gaddafi to die the way he died, you know, because in Muslim religion, we have to respect the die person, whether he's bad or he's good, he died already, you know. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, and because when I met Hillary Clinton and I told her Gaddafi invite her and her husband, President Clinton, to visit Libya, she told me, this is what happened with me. She told me, Yes, I'll be very interested to meet this guy, you know, and I want to know more about him. She was very friendly, you know, and she want to come and meet Gaddafi. And don't forget, Condoleezza Rice went there and met Gaddafi. And then the guy, he already died, and she was smiling. What is this? What the respect? Where is the respect? He's the president of the country, and he's a Muslim guy, you know. You're laughing because he died? You're laughing because you destroy Libya with NATO. If NATO did not interfere in Libya, Gaddafi will stay until now controlling Libya. 
there is no revolution in Libya, nothing, no revolution. They make the revolution, the American and the European, and they, NATO interfere. Why NATO did not interfere in Syria? Tell me. Because Putin make, because Putin make a mistake, he allows them to do this in Libya, then he wake up Putin, they didn't allow, he didn't allow them to do it with Syria. Otherwise they destroy Syria. But you know what you can say, United States superpower, they do whatever they want. But now they have to understand the Middle East not like before. Middle East well educated, social media allow all the information to come to us. So they cannot control us by remote control. Now, United States start to hear no from Middle East. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to note too, I mean, when it comes to all these issues, I think the picture is much more nuanced and, and there's multiple sides to geopolitical issues than what a lot of people are accustomed to if they're watching sound bites on news media. I mean, it was very interesting reading your book because you talk about, you know, uh, Gaddafi wasn't necessarily even a fan of Saddam Hussein. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, could you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll we'll get to the last question right after. He was not friend to Saddam Hussein. They never was a friend because of the relation of Iran and the Iran war. But Gaddafi was very, very unhappy for Saddam Hussein picture on all the newspaper that the British humiliating him and trying to check his mouth and his beard. And I was attending Gaddafi in his room when he was receiving the first call from Tony Blair. And the first question Gaddafi said to him, look, Saddam Hussein, he was president of the country. He's the head of the military. Your army, when they catch him, they should do this for him and tell him, you're under arrest with respect, you know, not to humiliate him. I don't want to see this in your media anymore, you know. Then Tony Blair said, you know, we cannot control the media. But in the end, he told them, yes, I will try to close this. He said, before saying hi, I want this to be happened. So he was very, very upset because of Saddam Hussein, what's happening to him. You had wanted me to ask, you know, if there was a politician in the Middle East that, you know, you would work for today, who would that be? Uh, so I want to give you a chance to talk about that. Yeah. You know, after working 22 years with President Gaddafi, what I see now, I have three leaders. I would like to work with them if they want. One of them is uh, President Putin, you know. Second one, Rajab Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey. And third one is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And if you ask me why, I will tell you. President Putin, when he come and control Russia as a president, Russia was zero. It was only superpower United States. He built Russia. He make it very strong and he put balance in the world and he become superpower. This is why we have to respect this guy, you know? And Rajab Tayyip Erdogan, when he became as a president, Turkey was nothing on the map. You know, nobody respect her. There is no good economy. He make Turkey very good economy and he make Turkey member of the NATO, you know? And he made Turkey very strong military, you know, and he Muslim country in the middle of Europe for all what he did, we have to respect him. The third one, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. I think this guy, he's a legend, you know. This guy, everybody have to respect him because he did something. None of Saudi royal family king was the courage or the guts to do it. He gave freedom for women. He opened the country, you know. He make, he make you, Saudi Arabia like Europe, Riyadh, you know. He make women drive. He give women high position. 
the ambassador of Saudi Arabia in United States is a woman, you know. He did in a short time a miracle. And this guy, what I can say, he put Saudi Arabia on the fast track, you know. This guy, everybody have to respect him. I respect him very much. And this is why I would like to work with him. He have a guts, you know, and he's a very brave guy. I never met these three guys, you know, but I follow them in the news. And this, this three names are not uh, uh, friend, very close friend to United States, but anyway, this personal, the three personality I like. So I, I know this will come up. I, I, I can already see listeners seeing this as controversial. How do you respond to people that will say, well, all of these people that you're talking about, whether it's Gaddafi or, or Putin or uh, Mohammed bin Salman, they're, they're brutal leaders, dictators, uh, killers. How do you respond to people who have that reaction? Because, I mean, I, I have uh, my criticisms of Putin and Mohammed bin Salman, but how, how do you respond to uh, people that may accuse you of um, being apologetic. Um, I, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. You know, I'm not apologetic, but uh, Yanni, what you tell me, the Americans they are not a killer. This is what you are trying to tell me. They kill half of Iraq. They kill Afghanistan. They kill everywhere. You know, every president have good side and bad side, you know. Even United States are a killer, you know? So if anybody is going to abuse me by this, better go and abuse the United States before me, you know? So every person, every leader have a bad side and good side, you know? Nobody have 100% clean history. To be president, you have bad side and a good side to control the country sometimes to be forced to do bad things, you know? But it doesn't mean if you are against United States, you are a minister. Because United States itself made a lot of mistakes. So anybody, before they abuse me, they better abuse their country. And Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he's not a killer. He, he have nothing to do about what's happening. Maybe his intelligent of, office responsible. I've been experienced with this with Gaddafi. Sometimes they do things, you know, and then they bring problem to the country. But him himself, I don't think he have nothing to do with this. Well, Dodge Rob, I want to thank you again for coming on. Parallax, just one more time. The book is The Colonel and I, My Life with Gaddafi. Uh, anything that you would like to say in closing or what you hope uh, listeners get out of this conversation or uh, what they get out of the book if, if they happen to uh, give it a chance and read it? I would like to thank everybody, you know, and I would like everybody here this conversation to read the book first and they judge me after they're reading this book. I'm not with Gaddafi. I'm not against him. I'm just telling my story what's happening with me. And I was, I'm, I write this book to share my experience with all the women in the world. And that's it. And thank you for everything. Thank you for everybody who read my book. Thank you for everything. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dodd Sharab. Be sure to check out her book, the Colonel and I, My Life with Gaddafi. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can give a monthly donation of $1, $5, $10, $15, or $100, and your support is what will keep this show going. And with that being said, 